Amen. Please be seated. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52? Uh, For you to get the most out of these sermons, to follow along well, you do have to have your Bibles open. Uh, You have pew Bibles there. You have your electronic versions. Maybe you brought your hard copy. I have some of the verses on the outline, uh, but you do need to have your Bibles open. This is how we'll walk uh, together through this text in the most effective manner. Um, We are in a portion of Isaiah, the last third of the book, where he has, uh, this captures the ministry of Isaiah towards the end of his 50-year prophetic ministry, and he is basically uh, preparing the people for the captivity that will come upon them uh, by way of Babylon. Babylon's rising. There's no question uh, what the end result will be at this point. God's discipline has been upon them. He has sustained them, for sure, through many hardships, including an Assyrian captivity that almost came to the southern kingdom but was avoided. Well, now their judgment is sure insofar as exile is concerned. So Judah will undergo this oppression from Babylon, and Isaiah is teaching and preaching to prepare them for that so they will be able to have this word of promise when they're in captivity. But the beauty of this is it's, it transcends just the people of God in this moment. It, it speaks to us as well, the people of God now, uh, when we undergo periods of oppression or times where we wonder about the promises of God. Now, what's uh, pointed about this section? Starting in chapter 51, Isaiah seems to be speaking just to the faithful remnant within Judah. Judah are the people of God, but within Judah, there are some who are getting it. Uh, They recognize that they can only be saved by faith in Jehovah. Only he can provide the servant who is the faithful one to represent them. And so a small remnant gets it, and so God speaks words of encouragement to this remnant. But he also takes his gaze upward and says to all of Judah, this message is for you to lay hold of as well. Um, At the beginning of chapter 51, the, the faithful remnant says to the Lord, wake, Lord, and save us. Meaning to say, we get it, we see our sins, we know what's coming, save us. And God immediately responds with assurance. He comforts them that he will bring them salvation. Then he says to the whole now, not just to the remnant, you wake up, everybody wake up. And he explains to them why they have experienced this discipline, why it's coming upon them. He makes no mistake about what the situation is for them. And then we come to chapter 52. This is the, the preface to the last servant song, the most powerful of the servant songs, one that most of you probably know, Isaiah 53. And this is the buildup for that picture of Messiah, of their salvation. And so God speaks now to the people of God, and he uses these words about wakening again. And it's a powerful word indeed. Here as I read Isaiah 52, I'll start at verse 1 and I'll read to verse 12. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. Here now. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. 
Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from, there, from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, you are the one who reigns. You are our rock, you are our fortress, our sure foundation, you are holy, and we come to you only through the merit of the perfect servant, our Lord Jesus. He's your holy son, and he's our representative. You are our salvation. When we read of your salvation, when we declare your salvation, our hearts are lifted, our minds are renewed, our confidence is bolstered. Our doubts are relieved. Our sense of hope turns into a boldness that makes us want to declare your salvation through Christ to all the world. Please send your spirit that we might understand this passage before us and respond by being the people that you have called us to be through Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. What we have here declared to those who believe is God's command to be who they are, to bear outwardly the identity that has become theirs because of what what God has done for them in salvation. God saves us for a purpose, and it's not just to save us from eternal wrath. I'm so grateful to God for that because that's true. But he saves us so that we could be a declaration to the whole world about his salvation, that by saving sinners who clearly could not really save themselves— When we are saved and transformed, when we're shown to have an identity aligned with Jehovah through his servant, that's a declaration of God's glory. And that's really what shapes our lives. I mean, it changes everything about the way we think and act. Because our lives are to be shaped according to God's purpose in salvation. And his purpose is to bring glory to him for his holiness, who he is, and especially for the grace he shows sinners through Christ. Look at this passage with me, and you'll see how he addresses the people of God who have come to a place of repentance, confession, admitting who they are as sinners in need of God. They've asked him at the beginning of chapter 51 to please wake and save them. And we have God using a a rather scandalous picture 
of a woman, a scandalous woman, who is in return to the request for God to wake, she is being told to wake. And this is talking about Judah. Verse 1 says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. He's talking to his people. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Um, The people of God had been scandalized over and over again because of their sin and then because of the oppression from the foreign nations coming upon them. But now that they have awoken to their need for God, God promises them that salvation will come. And he uses a picture of a woman who is, who is in her stupor, uh, who has been unfaithful, scandalous, but now God has redeemed her. And he says, get up and put on the beautiful garments. Franz Dalich describes very well uh, this metaphor for us, saying, Jerusalem, verse 1, is lying upon the ground stupefied with the wrath and discipline of God and exhausted with grief. But this shameful prostration and degradation will now come to an end. He's promising its end. Now, I want to remind you of the way prophecies work because we're reading this in 2017. It was written in 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus fulfills so much of what is forecasted. And it speaks of events that happened hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaiah lived. So when the prophet's speaking, he's speaking first to an immediate audience. The immediate audience understands their dilemma. And there's an immediate need for relief. And God promises, laden in this bigger prophecy, that he will restore in a temporary way Israel itself. And this happens a generation later when Babylon loses power to Persia, Cyrus rises, and then allows the Jews to go back. Now, the glory is never experienced for Israel like it was under David and Solomon again. But God has fulfilled all of his promises to them ethnically. Uh, He does give them this relief as a way to remind them that he is faithful. But ultimately, what this is looking forward to is how it will be fulfilled in the perfect servant who will be expressed in the next chapter and has already been uh, introduced to us in other servant songs. He's saying that there will be a greater salvation that will come. You will bear an identity that will be obviously connected to Jehovah. It won't be dependent on your work because the servant will provide the work. And we'll see that play out. And that's a longer-term prophecy that we have all been able to see happen through the witness of Scripture and the knowledge of time. Now, there is something else, though, in this prophecy that's not just looking forward to the immediate or to Christ's coming. It's ultimate. It's a picture of the final glorified state. Not so that we would be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Not at all. That we're so heavenly minded, meaning we're so mindful of the glory of God that will be revealed and we will share in, that we will be a lot of earthly good. In fact, we'll be the only kind of earthly good that's really good. We recognize who is in charge of all of this, what he's working, and it crafts everything in our life. Everything changes when we recognize what his ultimate goal, what he's working towards. So no matter what we're dealing with right here and now, we know what God will work, and that helps us order our days right now, no matter what might come to us. It's a wonderful picture to help anybody at any phase of life, but especially those like these faithful members of Judah who were experiencing this this terrible oppression that was coming upon them. Notice what is told to them. Put on your beautiful garments. You know, when we think of clothes, uh, there's just, we have so much of it. Even those of you who have, think you only have a few things, 
you probably have more clothes than most people in the world, and then, of course, in the course of history, even more than that. And we have clothing for all occasions, but with all that clothing, it seems like we don't dress up for much anymore. Maybe weddings, church, you know, will dress up a bit. Uh, but clothing said something in antiquity that it's, we're not, not as familiar with. I mean, we have some of these events. I, just a couple weeks ago, I went to a daddy-daughter dance, and my daughter dressed up in a beautiful dress, and she wanted to make sure that I was going to wear a suit for this and that I would look good for this event as well. It was an important event, and so we dressed up for it. Well, what this is talking about is a bit different. The clothes that Judah was supposed to wear was meant to show who they were. It was like the priestly garments who showed their office or what they were called to do. But the people are told to put on these beautiful garments. Be who you really are in me is what the message becomes. And this is somewhat unique in the, New, in the Old Testament. It starts to unfold for us. Look at verse 2. Again, shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Uh, take your place. You're my people. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Uh, we have a picture of their, their freedom, but it comes showing their slavery. They're in the dust. Um, they have a bond on their neck. And unless they loose those, they'll remain in their old identity. They have to recognize that God promises them salvation. In fact, that's the point here. Your life should be lived in light of the promised salvation you have through Christ. It should shape everything about how you live and move. That's what he's calling them to. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Um, You may feel like I sold you out and divorced you. But remember back to chapter 50, he said, I didn't divorce you. Uh, No one gave me anything for you. I gave you into their hands so that you would be humbled and you would rely upon me again. So I gave you for nothing, and I'll take you back for nothing because you're mine. You're, You're mine is what he's saying. And you've repented. You've recognized in humility you need me. And so get up from the dust. Shake it off. Take the bonds off. Put on this beautiful garment. Be who you are called to be. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. This is most likely reference to when they were feeling the pressure of Assyria about 30 years before Isaiah wrote the passage we're reading. And instead of going to God, they went down to Egypt and tried to see if Egypt could help them fight off the Assyrians. Hopefully you remember that portion of the book. And they found that Egypt was no help. God warned them of this. And so the Assyrians came and oppressed them. Verse 5, now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail. They're in disarray because they have not been trusting in God. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. But finally, through this discipline that they had lived through and now that they were facing again, they were crying out to him. Verse 6, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. He's responding to them. He's telling them that he will deliver them. He will be there for them. And so he's saying, in light of that promise of salvation that will come, be who you are. Be my people. Show that you are my people. And this is a concept that is fully realized after Christ comes. When Christ comes, there's a clearness about where our identity lies. It's in Jesus. And this is why the Apostle Paul, writing in his earliest book to the Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So the the habit of 
placing ourselves before God based on our own merit or what we might have done is completely obliterated with Christ. It never was meant, but people tend to do that. But Jesus comes as our representative, and as he's crucified, he takes our sins with him. And that's why the apostle says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So who are we? We're people of Christ. We're Christ's people. Later in Corinthians, he writes, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So be who you are. You're a new creation. You're not the old any longer. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The apostle Peter writes in chapter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The Apostle John says in his book, in the first chapter, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We're God's children. Be who you are. Romans 8, and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What a different identity when you start to think about what God has called us to be. Later in the same book of Romans, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's something that Israelites never were. In their own strength, they didn't conquer anybody. But we are more than conquerors in Christ. So live your life in light of God's promised salvation and be who you really are, his children, more than conquerors even. And this will cause us one reaction, and it comes to us in verse 7 down to verse 10, where we see a celebration of God's salvation for all to see. Now, to be clear, everybody will get to see God's salvation. Not everyone will taste it, not everybody will have it, but all will see it. God will display his salvation for the earth to observe. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. See, this is a picture of, of God's reign, his kingdom, it's realized in a very immediate sense when even Babylon can't stay powerful for long. Persia comes along. It doesn't matter what nation's there. God maintains his hand upon his people. And that initial audience would have witnessed it as they were allowed to go back to the land. And though mountains in north Israel, we wouldn't think of those like the Rockies, but for those in their way of thinking and their frame of reference would have thought of those as mountainous. So you can picture Jerusalem, kind of the, the, the capital and the center of God's people's nation, if you will, and you could see the messengers coming from the mountains from where Babylon was to bring the good news that God had brought deliverance. But this is a picture of the great deliverance we have through Christ. It's not meant to be just a simple deliverance from Persia. It's so much more than this. And that message that the messenger brings, it, it makes them beautiful. I mean, how beautiful is when you see those people? Because feet aren't beautiful. But when feet are carrying the message, that's what makes it such a beautiful sight to behold. And what are these messengers bringing? This promise of restoration. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who brings good news. And they needed good news. And we need good news. Because there's bad news. There's darkness. There's estrangement. There's a separation with God. And good news comes to say that it's over, that God's restored this. Verse 7, the second part, who publishes peace. Because we have the opposite of peace with God when we're in our sins. They didn't have peace with people. That was the least of their problems, the least of their peace problems. But this publication of peace was more than about a seizing of war. It meant now God and them were no longer at war. There's no more battle with them. That's part of the good news of the gospel, which means good news. 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. The gospel brings good news, peace, happiness. The last part of verse 7, who publishes salvation, and it brings salvation. Salvation from ultimate estrangement from God and salvation to a recognition of the glory of God, the reign of God, as the last part of verse 7 says, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, evangelism is the declaration of the good news. Evangelism isn't about tabulating numbers of responses. We pray for that, but only God can bring responses. What God calls us to do is be evangels, messengers of the good news. And how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news, because the world needs good news. I mean, I need good news every week, and I've long come to accept that good news by his grace. So people living in darkness, we can't estimate how beautiful the feet are those who bring that good news, that good news of God's peace through Christ, ultimately, as we see displayed later in Isaiah, as we've already caught a glimpse of. They recognize by now that the good news is not because of their obedience. They can see they're totally, totally beholden to God's grace. And God says that he sends this good news of peace, of happiness, of salvation, and ultimately it's a declaration that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is the gospel of God has come and subdues people to himself in places perfect righteous judgment on those who do not. This is all about God's glory on display. And you can see the, the joy or the excitement as the watchmen figuratively see the messengers coming to tell of salvation. Look at verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Celebration is the right response to the message of the gospel. The good news of peace through Christ should make us sing for joy, for eye to eye we see the return of the Lord to Zion. Gospel arrival results in adulation and singing in worship. Verse 9, break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. And that's a way of saying a soldier who's wearing their normal garb, when they're ready to battle, they have to unravel the cloth or clothing around their arms so it's bare and they could swing their sword. And that's exactly what God is said to, have, to do for his people. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the nations of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Make no mistake, everyone will see God's salvation. But only those who trust in Christ will experience his salvation. All will witness it. No one will miss out on this. Now, if you know this message, don't you want other people to know this message? I mean, what's holding us back from telling the people that God brings into our sphere of influence? If we really think this is true, if we really think God's word is true, which keeps showing itself over and over again to be true. I mean, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? I mean, think back uh, at church history. It's one of my favorite things to do when I see how God um, spread the gospel. How beautiful it is that he would bring this good news. Think of the apostles when they first brought the good news uh, to Asia Minor, to Europe, to Northern Africa, into uh, all the way even north, as far as we can track. You know, and the reason why we know this is not just relegated to the time of Israel coming back from Babylon is because of what Paul said. You remember when Paul was talking in chapter 10 of Romans about the gospel message needing to be declared, the good news, to bring the message of the good news? And then he says in chapter 10, 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes Isaiah. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He takes this passage from Isaiah and under divine inspiration lets us know this is meant to be something bigger than just national Israel coming out of Babylon. This is about all of God's kingdom being expressed all over the world. And that's what you have uh, displayed when he ordains so many people to bring this message. How beautiful are the feet of those first apostles? How about those first century martyrs? How beautiful are their feet that they would bring the gospel extended from where the apostles were into Europe, the Middle East, into India, North Africa. Where the apostles had gone, they went further and they died for it. They were willing to go with that message and die for it. How beautiful were the feet of some of those early faithful leaders, like Augustine as Rome is falling in Rome. And even a little bit after Augustine is Patrick who goes to Ireland with the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news to other places. How beautiful are the feet of someone like Boniface, who brought the gospel to Germany and Saxony in the 8th century, which laid important groundwork for the rest of Christianity. How about Raymond Lull? How beautiful were his feet who brought good news to North African Muslims in the 13th century? How beautiful were the feet of Jonathan Edwards here in this continent? Now, you might think of Jonathan Edwards as the pastor in New England, and he was. But the last 10 years of his life, he was a pastor to the American Indians, bringing the good news there. How beautiful were the feet of William Carey who brought the gospel of God's peace through Christ to India and sparked a widespread missionary movement. That's why he's known as the father of modern missionary efforts. How beautiful were the feet of Hudson Taylor. He's the first missionary biography I ever read. Hudson Taylor, who labored in China for over 50 years, didn't see a convert to the last five years. But his movement spawned a movement of missions that was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries into that country in those days, establishing over 100 schools, multiple Christian conversions. And we have still yet to see the full fruit of what will come to pass in Asia because of ministry started when beautiful feet brought the gospel to that place. How about the beautiful feet of David Livingston who brought the good news of salvation through Christ to Africa? How about Adoniram Judson who labored for the propagation of the gospel in Burma for over 40 years. How beautiful were the feet of Charlotte Moon, who served faithfully in China for 40 years after Taylor. How beautiful are the feet of Amy Carmichael, who brought the gospel to India, ministering there for 55 years. How beautiful were the feet of Mary Slessor, who gave her life for the proclamation of the good news in Nigeria. How beautiful were the feet of Jim Elliott and his team of missionaries who brought the good news of Christ to Ecuador. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful are the feet of our missionaries that we're so blessed to be able to support and be partners with the Hepis in Britain, the Youngs in the border, the Burkhempers in Mexico, the McGinties in South Africa, that we have some small part in helping them bring on a frontline level the gospel. The Jensen's in Japan, the Vaughn's in Costa Rica, the Neblets in Malaysia, Our Juarez team, how beautiful are the feet of those who go to bring this good news. Our Omaha team, the teams we've sent to Moldova, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news. How about you personally? Barely a week goes by where I do not thank God for the beautiful feet of those faithful evangelists in a small little church that doesn't even exist anymore in Grand Island, New York, where they did a backyard Bible club in the HUD housing that was across the street from where I grew up. And I remember sitting there hearing the gospel clearly proclaimed, as clear as I'd ever heard it, although I'd been in church my whole life. But I heard the gospel from this faithful little group. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And how beautiful are the feet of you moms and dads. You're not all going to be Hudson Taylors. I know I won't be. But how beautiful are the feet of you moms and dads who every day work to express the good news of peace through Christ to your children. How beautiful are the feet of each of you members as you go into the places that God's called you in your workplaces, your neighborhoods, among your families, and you express the good news. How beautiful it is to publish this message of peace, this message of happiness in the truest sense through contentment and salvation that comes through Christ. And we could say that our God reigns. What does this promote? I love what Again, Franz Dalich says in describing these feet, the gospel of the swift-footed messengers, therefore, is the gospel of the kingdom of God that is at hand. Lastly, if you notice these final verses, you will see there is a result that comes to us when we have this liberation in God's calling his people here. And this is profound. This is teaching that we read here that we're familiar with from the New Testament to walk in liberty and holiness. We're saved, so we should walk a certain way. Uh, We're saved, so therefore we should live like this. But for these Old Testament saints at this particular juncture, this was a refreshing message to them. In some sense, it's probably new to many of them as, as to how they thought about it. Look what is told to them. Their promised salvation, and then verse 11 says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, a quick reading of this would, would cause you to miss completely the, the, the depth of this. Okay, he's talking to a people who are familiar with a priesthood. A priesthood designated by their special wardrobe and also the tribe they come from, the Levites. They're supposed to represent the people in giving the sacrifices. And they are a special people set apart, and they have to follow very strict rules about cleanliness. They have to wear certain things. But this passage is not written to the priesthood. It's written to the people. Yet it's speaking like we're the priesthood. Look what it says. Depart, depart, go from here, touch no unclean thing. He's just announced his salvation is good news. Now he's saying, depart, don't touch any unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. He's saying, leave Babylon, ultimately, or leave wherever it is you are. Purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. You who bear the vessels of the Lord is a reference to the priesthood. Yet he's a Attributing this to the people. Verse 12, for you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in, go, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. Unlike the Exodus that they were all familiar with, where they had to go in flight, where they couldn't even put yeast in their bread, they had to leave. It'll be different than that. In final Exodus, we'll be as calm and as confident as you can imagine as God leads his people to final rest. It's a picture of ultimate salvation that will come. It won't be like the salvation you remember, Israelites. It'll be way greater than that. So in light of this salvation, come out of them. 
Don't be like them. Depart this thing. Now, there's something really profound here, and I want to show you what it is. This language about the priesthood and about them being cleansed and about them being a people set apart comes to them 700 years before the time of Isaiah. Isaiah is written 700 B.C. Moses is 1440 B.C. 700 years. Okay? This is important. Because when God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt, listen to what God tells them. This is so important to understanding the servant. In Exodus 19, on the third moon, new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You've seen my salvation, people. Okay, follow what he says. Now, therefore, since I brought you the salvation, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. Follow this. He's saying, I've saved you. Now be my faithful servant. Right? Be my faithful servant. Obey my voice. Problem. Were they his faithful servant? No. That's a real problem. Because it says, if you do this, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people, he says to Moses. Very quickly, we realize they are not faithful servants. So God reveals, it's not plan B, by the way. God knows this. God manifests the servant who would be the faithful one. And through that servant, they would become a kingdom of priests. You see, it's the servant of Jehovah he wants to accent. It's not a mistake what happens here. He knows they're not going to express the holiness that is needed to earn or to merit their salvation. So by showing them to be the unfaithful servants that they are as they fail over and over again to follow the law that God lays out, it sets up the servant to be the obvious Messiah, the obvious Savior. This is what's pictured. So now when we come to Isaiah, and he's setting up who the servant is, the real servant, and he's saying, I promise salvation. Now depart all this unclean stuff. Get out of this and recognize who, I, who you are in me. And he's setting them up for obvious faith and trust in the only servant who can be trustworthy, the only servant worthy of God's glory and his great righteousness. Notice it says in the passage in Exodus, you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It never happens. But then we have the apostle Peter writing after the servant comes. After Jesus comes and fulfills this role, the apostle Peter says to all of us Christians now, not just ethnic Jews, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you see what he's saying? You are the fulfillment of what Israel failed at and the servant accomplished, and now through Christ, you are that holy nation that I've made you to be. Listen to the totality of what First Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. I didn't just make up this proposition. The reason why you're saved is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That's why you're saved. It's a benefit that you don't get to go to hell. I mean, praise God for that. And while you're not in hell, guess what you're supposed to do? 
proclaim the excellences, the excellencies of him who saved you. That's, that's the point. That's, what, that's why we're saved. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this language connects so wonderfully to the Old Testament and to us, as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. Does it sound familiar? I have saved you to declare to the world that, you, that I am God. Depart from uncleanness. That's what he says in this passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the New Testament, 70 or earlier A.D. And it connects exactly with Isaiah 700 B.C. And it fulfills what was said in 1445 B.C. Oh, you could have confidence. What you're hearing is the truth. And you can have all the more confidence to express this truth to everybody that you have opportunity to express it to. Our lives are to be shaped by the purpose of God's salvation, to demonstrate his glorious grace to the world. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your sure word. In a world with all sorts of fake news, what we have here is the pure truth revealed to us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for calling the prophets and calling the apostles to bear this message for safeguarding this message, for delivering it to us, that we might open it today, and it is as relevant as it was 100 years ago, and 100 years ago before that, and 1,000 years before that. And it will be 100 years if you tarry after us as relevant, or 1,000 years after if you tarry relevant there as well. Thank you for this truth, for your word is truth. Sanctify us by it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together turn in response to a wonderful song of God's conquest. It's called a missionary hymn because of God's conquest that is described and celebrated. It fits perfectly with what we have just read. Let's turn to 369. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns. Mm -hmm. 